Hi, I'm Murdoch Gaddy, and thanks for listening to The Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. The Rate of Change is a podcast which explores the ever-shifting momentum of financial markets through the eyes of the leading managers in wealth management. In today's podcast, I'm joined by Andrew Killerstein, the Portfolio Manager at Palisade Investment Partners, to discuss the Palisade Infrastructure Fund and their Infrastructure Trust, plus the other funds. Andrew defines the infrastructure universe, discusses why they look only at particular Australian mid-tier infrastructure assets to invest in, and highlights the importance of these assets in the community. According to the January 2023 fund fact sheet, the trust targets income and growth whilst their average return was 9.8% for the past 12 months, 8.5% for the past three years, 9.1% for five years, and They've averaged 9% since inception. We dive into most of the assets such as airports, wind farms, gas pipelines, ports, plus others. And I found the conversation on the Sunshine Airport quite interesting. He discusses everything from why they look for these assets to how the tender process works to acquire these assets. I really enjoyed his insights into the Australian infrastructure universe, so please remember to listen to the disclaimer at end of the rockcast and keep your feedback coming. You can reach me at mgatty at ywm.com.au. And with that being said, I hope you enjoyed this conversation as much as I did. So sit back, relax, and enjoy. Andrew Killerstein, welcome to the Rate of Change with York Wealth Management. Thank you, Murdoch. Great to be here. Absolutely. Why don't we kick things off and uh, can you give everyone a bit of an idea of how you got into financial markets, a bit of your background and a bit about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, so I'm a, I'm a Canberra boy uh, originally and uh, at university I did uh, economics and commerce. And so when I finished uni, I had the choice of either being a an accountant, uh, an investment banker, or uh, an economist. And so I, I got a, a job offer from Deloitte in Canberra uh, at, at the time and sort of went down the accountancy path and um, I think pretty quickly worked out that my heart lied in finance. And so I uh, had a couple of friends actually that were at Macquarie and applied for the for the Macquarie graduate program in, in Sydney and uh, fortunately was uh, was lucky enough to be to be offered a role there and, and went into their their infrastructure funds business um, back in 2005. And if you recall back then, uh, that was around the time that really private investment in infrastructure was taking off in Australia. And if you you can recall those um, three massive listed satellite funds, Macquarie Airports, Macquarie Infrastructure Group, which was the Roads Fund and Macquarie Communications Group, they were the, they were the big three funds at the time. And it was great to get exposure to uh, sort of what was uh, undoubtedly the leader in, in infrastructure investment at the time in, in Macquarie. So how did um, Macquarie lead to Palisade? Uh, so uh, I left uh, Macquarie in 2012 and, and really that was around sort of uh, trying something new. So I then went to uh, Java which is one of the, the asset consultants, one of the leading institutional asset consultants in Australia and, and headed up their direct investments business, which was um, advising uh, a lot of superannuation clients on um, direct investments into infrastructure projects. I was there for about three years and then uh, was lucky enough to, to, to move over to Palisade to um, sort of head up their portfolio function and investor function. Uh, so I've been there for the last six years and, and loving it. So before we get into the details of Palisade, which everyone's interested in, um, the infrastructure space is quite an interesting one, uh, especially what's happened in the past couple of decades. Can you give everyone a bit of an idea of what exactly is the infrastructure universe, in your opinion? Yeah, so infrastructure is um, it's a it's a set of assets that fundamentally these assets are essential for the efficient functioning of an economy, right? So we're talking about airports, ports, uh, electricity generation, uh, energy transmission, distribution, digital infrastructure is a is a somewhat of a emerging asset class. Um, it was emerging pre-COVID, but certainly the onset of COVID and the working from home and remote working sort of accelerated, uh, obviously, data usage in, in, the, in, in the world. And so... Uh, digital infrastructure is certainly one of those asset classes which is 
people emerging more quickly than others. Um, but, but ultimately, from a, from a business sense and a, and a business, business characteristic sense, infrastructure is very much um, monopolistic in nature, high barriers to entry. And so what that means from a investment fundamentals point is that it is often seen as a defensive asset class within a broader portfolio. And coupled with that, you do get strong and stable income yields. And so, you know, when people ask me uh, what role does unlisted infrastructure play in a broader portfolio, you know, I, I think the, the key really is that it's, a, um, it's, a, it's, it's an uncorrelated strategy to more traditional asset classes and, and provides that sort of balancing effect for the portfolio. Okay, so that's essentially the universe. So what's Palisades' um, approach and their investment philosophy? And I suppose, as you said, you've been um, Macquarie, you've seen how they kick this all off. So I'm actually really interested into um, why is what Palisades doing different? Um, you know, what's their niche? You know, yeah, sure. So we are very much about mid-market infrastructure Excuse me, and that's been a that's been a very deliberate focus of ours uh, since we started back in two thousand and eight. And and really at the time there we saw a gap in the market. Obviously, large cap infrastructure at the time was very well was very well banked, right? So you think about your large capital city airports and ports. Uh, there was significant amount of capital investing in those projects and a significant amount of interest. Mid market infrastructure, on the other hand, was relatively untouched. At that point in time and when we talk about mid-market we're talking about assets that are lower down on the size spectrum and people often ask me what size investments are you targeting it can be quite hard to answer that because each sector is slightly different but if we were to put a number on it you know we're generally looking at assets of of 500 million dollars enterprise value you know up to a billion dollars a billion dollars would be a big a big transaction for us um, and so our approach is very much targeting that mid-market Space. Now, why do, we, why do we like that space? It's really two reasons. Um, the first is simply down to demand and supply in that um, we believe, and I think our portfolio um, is evidence of this, that uh, there is uh, an abundance of um, mid-market assets um, for, for investment in the, Australian, in the Australian market. When you compare that to the large cap space, you know, it can be the pipeline can be more driven by whatever the privatisation agendas of the state governments may be at a particular point in time. So we very much believe there is a, a greater supply of assets in the mid-market. And then on the demand side, um, if you think about the sort of traditional investors into infrastructure, it's been your Australian superannuation funds, your offshore pension funds, uh, your, your offshore sovereign wealth funds, who have significant amounts of capital to invest. And they're generally the ones that have come up and pushed up prices, um, particularly in that large cap space, right? We don't tend to see those larger investors in the mid cap space just because of the scalability of mid market compared to large cap. And so simply from a demand supply dynamic, we believe there's better pricing available in the mid market uh, and, that, and that results in better risk adjusted returns for investors. The other reason why we like the mid-market is, is around control, right? So any, any infrastructure manager will tell you that they have an active approach to asset management, um, and we do as well. We will tell you that. Now, what does that practically mean for us? That means that given the size of the assets that we're acquiring, um, we are generally able to, between our fund and our co-investment partners, able to acquire majority stakes in assets, if not 100% of assets. And what that means is that we're able to work uh, very closely with the management teams of those underlying assets to drive value for investors. How's, how's the unlisted uh, uh, work differently to the listed um, infrastructure funds in the market? What's the, what's the pros and cons? Yeah, I mean, with listed, um, you're ultimately buying a, a small stake in, 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 in a company, right? Um, and so... You're very much, uh, with listed infrastructure, is very much about um, the analysis of the stock itself and whether it's underpriced or overpriced uh, and what that means for your portfolio. Um, obviously, with listed infrastructure, you are um, subject to, 
to market noise. Um, and, you know, I think a lot of people probably won't realise or maybe they do realise that, uh, that they would already have exposure to listed infrastructure probably through their equities portfolios. The, the, particularly in Australia, the listed infrastructure universe isn't, isn't big, right? So I think people have already got exposure to listed infrastructure in their portfolios already. When you look at unlisted infrastructure, it's very much a different mindset. It, it's it's, a, it's an, a, an active approach to asset management. You don't get that volatility, right? So all of our assets are independently valued. And we can see, and we, we've got some, some charts that we can show investors that you can see that the, um, the, the drawdown or the, the negative return in any period um, for our strategy versus listed strategies is markedly different, right? So I think the key really, the key difference between unlisted and unlisted is, is around that stability point of returns and not necessarily subject to market cycles. I won't go into an argument of whether listed or unlisted is better. There have been numerous papers put out by managers on both sides and they're very self-serving, let's say, on sort of which is the better strategy. So we'll leave that argument for another time. Well, I can just say from my perspective that uh, they're tools in order to get a job done. Uh, some work better in some macro environments uh, from a liquidity standpoint, uh, whilst others, if things turn ugly, you can get hurt quite badly, whilst the other vehicle, you know, can weather the storm quite well. So you'd probably agree that a different vehicle may be more of a choice based on what's currently happening on a macro st uh, standpoint than on the micro. That's right. It comes down to investor objectives and yep. their need for liquidity, their tolerance for volatility as well. Yeah, exactly. Well, look, the reason why we're here today is um, I really want to get a better understanding of uh, what um, investment opportunities Palisades currently offering. Um, our understanding and what we're going to learn about is specifically the in, on the infrastructure fund. So what uh, vehicles are currently available? What's their mandates and why have they been structured in that way? Yeah, sure. So um, with respect to, so, so we have three vehicles across the business. Um, our diversified fund, which is our flagship open-ended fund. So it has um, exposure to, to 25 odd assets in the portfolio already. And that fund will continue to, to, to grow over time and will continue to invest along the various sector lines within that, within that fund. So that's our institutional fund and that's where the majority of our institutional investors come through, like our superannuation funds and insurance, insurance clients. We then have a specialised renewable energy fund and social infrastructure fund, social infrastructure PPP fund which are a government availability style cash flows. Now, those two funds are funds in their own right, and they're more for investors who want specific exposure to those particular sectors, but also our diversified fund invests in those funds as well. And that's how the diversified fund gets its exposure to renewable energy and to social infrastructure PPPs, right? So I think, um, you know, when we're, when we're, um, offering our strategy to the clients very much the majority through our diversified offering because um, that provides exposure to ultimately everything that we do as a business. And so for the, for the wholesale market, we have set up a specific um, wholesale feeder fund that invests into the diversified fund. Okay, so whenever investors invest into that into that feeder fund, um, they will not only get access to um, all future investments that we make through the fund, they'll also get access to the, the, the assets and the track record that we've built up over the last 15 years and, and the existing assets within the fund. Okay. So how much money is currently in those structures? So in the, in the diversified fund, that's currently a, a $1.6 billion fund. Um, I think it should... Uh, reach $2 billion uh, fairly shortly, given the pipeline of opportunities uh, that, that we're looking at. Within the feeder fund itself, we've raised around $300 million. So that feeder fund is a, a meaningful part of, of our diversified um, institutional fund. And that feeder fund just sits alongside our other institutional investors um, within, that, within that institutional fund. So um, with new capital coming in, do you take capital at any point in time and then let it sit there and wait for an opportunity or do you try to get the deal first and then fund it? 
Can you give a bit of colour around that? It's a very good question, and it's uh, it is a, a fine balance. Obviously, um, unlisted infrastructure is an asset class where it can be quite opportunistic. So we can sometimes go six months, even twelve months, without doing a transaction because sometimes these transactions have a long gestation period in terms of. Um, you know, either working with partners or developers or whatever it may be to bring a project to fruition. On the other hand, and, and this is sort of the, the um, experience that we've had uh, of late, we can do three transactions in three months, right? So it, it just really depends. And so for that reason, um, we've tried to match as best as possible um, raising capital in the fund to meet those transactions. So. In answer to your question, no, the fund isn't open all the time because we don't want a situation where um, people invest capital and then that capital sits there without a, without a home. And before we get into the really interesting part, learning exactly how the mechanics of that all work, um, what, how's the performance been? Um, what are you targeting? Um, I believe you have an income target and then the secondly, a, a growth component. How's that work? Yeah, I mean... Performance has been performance has been good. Um, if we look at the twelve month numbers, you know, generally we're targeting um, high single digit net total returns on this strategy. Uh, I think the the numbers over the last uh, twelve months uh, were nine point eight percent, so we're at the higher end of, of of that return target. And then from a yield perspective, remembering my comments earlier that this is a a some considered asset class, but but sort of without getting into an argument of whether it's defensive or growth, undoubtedly this is a, an asset class that produces stable income yields. Why don't we use the phrase, it's uncorrelated. It's uncorrelated. Market volatility. That sounds good. Um, and so uh, generally we're targeting the yields of 5 to 6% and, and certainly that's what we've been able to, to deliver the last 12 months. I think, what's, I think what's more pleasing though is the returns that we've been able to generate over the over the long term. And so our technical returns are currently sitting at around about 11% total return net um, and, and around about 6% yield. So I think in some ways that is the more pleasing number for us rather than the, the, the sort of 12 month and six month returns more recently. So with staying on the returns for a second, uh, how were the returns impacted in a rate environment that pretty much went nearly zero? And we've had probably the most aggressive round of rate we've seen in such a short period. Uh, does the fund and the investment vehicles benefit from an uplift in the cash rate? Uh, if I had a penny for every time I've been asked, uh, how do you expect uh, infrastructure valuations to uh, to perform in this latest market? So um, I think it's important to to think about how infrastructure, how unlisted infrastructure is valued, right? So it's, it's valued typically on a discounted cash flow basis, right? These are very stable assets with predictable cash flows. And so it's not unusual that assets are valued using a 30, 40, 50 year cash flow model, right? Um, and so one element of evaluation is the forecast cash flows. And then the other element of evaluation is the discount factor, the discount rate for those cash flows. Now, um, all of our assets are independently valued and our independent, our independent valuers um, take us through the cycle approach to determining what an appropriate discount rate is. So in the last 10 years, we've had a, a period of significant falling bond yield. We did not see discount rates fall in lockstep with those bond yields. And equally, we do not expect and we have not seen discount rates increase in lockstep with bond yields. Okay. So, um, are we sitting here saying that discount rates won't go up? No, I think there's definitely upward pressure to discount rates. Will they go up materially? No, I don't think so. The other side of the coin though, is that remembering that this asset class, and in particular this fund, um, has strong CPI correlation, right? So our CPI correlation across the portfolio is 0.8. So what that means is that if there's a 1% increase in CPI above our expectations, that results in a 0.8% increase in the value of the portfolio. So very strong inflation correlation in the portfolio. And so the other side of the coin on valuations is that if there's high bond yields that are being implemented to target high inflation, 
that's actually a benefit for our portfolio. And we've seen this play out the last six or 12 months, whereby we've portfolios actually performed really well because it is benefited from high inflation because of the pass through that, because a lot of the underlying assets, they have inflation escalators in the underlying contracts. Well, I have to dig into this a bit. So uh, inflation has been up now, essentially, I think uh, the research we're getting from the state says 80% of all central banks globally are currently in a tightening phase. Funny enough, China, first one to crash, maybe the first one coming out of this mess and it's benefiting the iron ore sector. But if everyone's tightening to essentially put a lid on inflation and there's an argument that our good old central banks and governments pretend to uh, either do a handbrake turn north or south, um, or uh, I think the expression running around town is uh, project break everything. Uh, if that's their intention to essentially drive it from a disinflation environment into a deflation environment, which there hasn't been many in like seven years, how's that going to impact a, an investment vehicle, which as you said, benefits on a 0.8% uh, you know, correlation to the movement in inflation? We're fairly, to, to, be, to be fair, we're fairly agnostic to um, what happens with inflation, right? The key for us is ensuring that we have inflation protection in the portfolio to ensure that real returns of investors are preserved, right? So if inflation goes down and there's a big tightening cycle, then the reverse happens and we expect to see benefits in other parts of the portfolio. Discount rates will likely come down a little bit. Again, they won't go down in lockstep, because of the through the cycle approach that the valuers look at, but there'll be less upward pressure on discount rates and lower discount rates pushes values up, right? So I think it's, it's, it's very important to consider both sides of the coin with respect to the discount factor that's applied to valuations and the CPI linkage. As I said, we're not, we're not necessarily investing for a high inflationary environment. We just want to ensure that real returns are protected within the portfolio. That makes a lot of sense. Well, let's let's talk about these specific assets in the portfolio, and um, maybe we to give everyone a bit of colour. Let's talk about uh, the Sunshine Airport. And the reason I want to talk about this is both personal, and I find it very interesting. And I heard you just got back from Rooster as well. I did. Yes. How good is Rooster? Very good. Very good. Particularly See, when you don't have kids. Yeah. <laughs> well, well, sorry, I do have kids, but I left them at home. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Look, my grandfather, grandparents, uh, retired there about thirty years ago. So I think I was very, very lucky to uh, be introduced to a beautiful World Mills Store Caravan Park before it turned into the mecca that it is today. Um, what we uh, I heard you guys were discussing that Sydney Airport is what now the fastest growing airport in Australia. Sunshine Coast Airport. Sunshine Coast, mean? sorry. Yeah, the Sunshine Coast Airport. Uh, is that still the case? Yeah, it's one of, I, I won't say it's the fastest because I haven't seen the latest numbers, but certainly it is It is one of the fastest growing airports. And I mean, Sunshine Coast is one of the fastest growing regions in Australia as well, which obviously then translates into traffic that goes through that airport. So there's not just airports in the port, in the portfolio, but let's just look at that. Because what I want to understand is the start to finish of uh, how's the tender process works? How do you identify this as you said, mid-market? Um, once you have the asset, um, how do you ascertain what needs to be improved, fixed? We're talking about a new runway. Is it going to turn uh, the, the airport businesses itself? You know, it went from just having a couple of dodgy cafes, which we loved, to now essentially being like a Stockland or a, or a mini Westfield internally with all these fantastic stores. Like, what's the... So to repeat myself, um, the tender process, how do you identify fixing things? How do you manage the business and what's the looking forward? Yeah, yeah so this, this, this transaction started with um, a, a tender process that the Sunshine Coast Council um, put out at, at the time. And, um, you know, at the time we had, um, we had good experience in airports. So we already had Darwin and Alice Springs airports in our portfolio. Um, and if you think about Darwin, um, you know, it, it is a little bit of a similar story in that we've just taken that airport through a, a redevelopment, a terminal redevelopment. And so, um, there are a lot of credentials that we could put on the table to the Sunshine Coast Council, um, to, um, to show them that, that we would be a, an appropriate partner to, to drive this airport going forward. And, and it is very much a partnership with the council. It's not as though they sell the asset and then walk away. Obviously, they are heavily um, invested in ensuring that the service that is being provided at the airport 
um, continues to be top class so they can attract um, visitors uh, to, to, their, to their region. So it is very much a, a partnership that we have with the council there. But during the process, um, you know, we obviously did our due diligence, uh, doing due diligence on an airport takes a long time. And, and we went through that process in terms of looking at traffic forecasts and, and, and ultimately um, we were selected as the as the the preferred partner for, for the council to then um, to then sort of own own the airport and manage the airport. Now, a, a really key part of this transaction was um, the new runway, right? So, the the existing runway that was at Sunshine Coast Airport was a north south runway along the beach. Um, I don't know the exact stat, but there are a lot of aborted landings because of the crosswinds, right? And so, the Sunshine Coast Council always had this. Um, this, this project plan of building a new two and a half kilometre runway um, out, to, out to the northwest. And that does two things. It means that there's, the crosswinds are not an issue anymore, but it means that it's able to attract larger aircraft as well. And that, and that was really key with Sunshine Coast Airport is um, it's a huge catchment area. Sunshine Coast, 400,000, 500,000 people catchment area, right? Now, a lot of that catchment was being lost to Brisbane Airport because of the availability of flight, there were just not a huge amount of flights available at Sunshine Coast Airport. So, you know, one of the first things that we did when, when, we, when we got in there and, and with the new owners is um, spent a lot of time working with the airlines and, and, um, and, and showing the, the benefits of, of the region, communicating with them about the new runway um, and ultimately um, with a view to attract the airlines and further routes to, to the airport, right? So the, the new runway was completed uh, 2020, I believe. And uh, since since we've acquired the airport, um, there was a Sydney and a Melbourne service. I think there was one Adelaide service and a seasonal New Zealand service. Since that time, we've added a Cairns service, a Newcastle service, a Canberra service, an additional Melbourne service. We've now got Bonza, the new um, budget airline in Australia is um, having the, is, is the base at Sunshine Coast Airport, right? And so what that means is that there's always a return trip going back at the end of the day because that's where the planes ultimately live, right? So the, the airport is just, um, in, in terms of the route development um, and the additional networks and routes that have been put on, um, it's been a real it's been a real success story. The, the other part of Sunshine Coast Airport is the property redevelopment side. And so it's not unusual that airports would have um, significant land banks that they can use for, for commercial property. And so, um, you know, one of the, the things, and we obviously went through a, a sort of heavy consultation process with council and, and, um, and, and, and residents and et cetera, was the, the closing down of the north-south runway freed up a lot of a lot of land that will then able to sort of commercially develop and so that's been a sort of additional um, project that we've been working on at the airport to to help diversify the revenue streams because remember that and we saw this during COVID right it was a really tough time for the airport and um, you look at Sydney and Melbourne those big capital city airports they would have a, a not significant amount of their revenue from non-aeronautical activities right and so that's what we're looking to do at Sunshine Coast is really to grow that non-aero side of the revenue stream and that helps protect against future shocks that hopefully won't happen but may happen. Well, it's a shame you don't do toll roads because uh, when, when the planes weren't flying, I would love for you to fix that uh, Bruce Highway. Yeah, right. <laughs> the right Bruce yeah. Highway is uh, it's always the pain, of, pain in the existence of trying to head up there. But um, so, yes, it's uh, great to hear about Sunshine Airport. So, as you said, COVID happens, planes aren't flying the portfolio is diversified. So what other asset classes or sub-asset classes are in the portfolio? Yeah, I mean, one of the great things about the market, and, and again, I think you can you can see this in our portfolio, is that you do get a good, um, good exposure to a lot of different sectors within the infrastructure asset class. Infrastructure is not a homogenous asset class. You've got um, everything from um, social infrastructure, PPPs, which, as I said, are government availability cash flows. Essentially, you get um, you get paid a quarterly payment for making the facility available as long as you meet certain KPIs, very low-risk assets. 
then going up through the risk spectrum, you've got energy transmission, generation, um, you've got uh, ports and, and bulk liquids. So um, port side infrastructure, like the big storage, uh, the big white tanks that you see port side, um, up to, to airports and then digital infrastructure as well. So from a, a risk return spectrum, it is quite a varied, um, varied of opportunities and, and within our portfolio, um, you know, we've got exposure to, to most of those major subsectors. Transport and energy are probably the two um, largest, not probably, they are the two largest exposures within the portfolio. And they certainly going forward will be key focus areas for us to continue to build out along those sector lines. Digital infrastructure is probably the other area that we like. And, and so, you know, typically we look to invest in sectors where they exhibit strong tailwinds and that we have expertise, right? That's sort of the two, the two things that we're looking at. And so if I were to sort of think about where this portfolio is going in future is very much transport and, and, and energy. We'll continue to build out those sector lines, but certainly digital infrastructure like uh, fiber data centers, et cetera. When you, um, say, when you say digital infrastructure, like I'm hearing some places, you know, uh, you buy a dam, the water essentially, uh, all the data centers underneath the water cools everything, but you don't have to go offshore, right? Is that something that you're looking at when you say di uh, digital infrastructure or are you saying something completely different? So digital infrastructure probably fits into to three main assets in my view. It's it's towers, Yep. right? Now, towers are great assets, um, but they can there's not many tower operators in Australia that would fall into the mid-market space. We've just, you know, we've seen Telstra um, sell off their towers business, Optus sell off their towers business, Vodafone in New Zealand sell off their towers business. They've all been quite sort of extraordinarily large transactions um, with prices to, to sort of meet that. Um, and so we do like towers as, a, as an asset but I think in terms of getting access to that in the mid-market um, could be challenging. And so really, when we talk about digital infrastructure, the two main areas that we're looking at is, is fiber. So last mile fiber, um, we've just recently um, acquired a, a fiber business in, in the US and looking to roll, roll out um, that, that network to other regions in the US. And then the other sector is data centers. So um, ultimately, um, you know, storage storage um, houses for, for, for large um, amounts of data. And so that's something which we're yet to make an investment in. Yet it, it can be quite challenging to enter that market if you're not an incumbent player. Um, but we've been certainly looking at a few opportunities. And really the, the space that we're looking at in data centres is, is edge data centres. So you can sort of split it up into hyperscale, which are your big data centres that sort of Amazon and Microsoft own. And then you've got your edge data centers, which are actually smaller data centers closer to the, the user, right? And so, um, you know, we, we feel that that fits more within our mid-market strategy. So um, what's the most recent acquisition in the portfolio? As you were saying, uh, you, look, uh, you find an opportunity uh, and then essentially telling investors, you know, we have an opportunity to get into the fund to essentially purchase this uh, particular asset. So what's the most recent acquisition? So the most recent acquisition is um, a wind farm, a wind farm called Stockyard Hill Wind Farm, which is down in Victoria. It is the, um, the largest wind farm in Australia at 528 megawatts. So it's a, it's a big one. Um, and really that investment is an extension of um, our existing renewable energy strategy that we've been undertaking for the last 10 or so years, which is to build out a diversified platform of renewable energy assets. And so now that is our sixth asset in the portfolio. It takes our renewable energy generation portfolio to over 1.5 gigawatts. Um, I heard the other day that um, that now makes Palisade the largest, or it, it now makes the Palisade platform of renewable energy assets the largest uh, in, the, in the country from an operational perspective. In terms of our renewable energy strategy, it really is about looking to, to, grow, out that, to, to grow out that sector. And so I, I think, you know, particularly with renewable energy, I feel that we're on the verge of a new build out of renewable energy in Australia. We sort of, we went through 
in 2015-2016 when we had this bipartisan support from the Labor and, and Liberal governments to um, put in place the renewable energy target, which mandated um, renewable energy retailers and large users to um, to purchase 20% of their energy needs from renewable sources. Um, that spurred a huge build out of renewable energy, you know, from, from 2016 to 2020. We've then hit a bit of a lull the last couple of years and I'm did any favours in that respect, but certainly the last 12 or so months, um, you know, we've seen a real push um, to um, sort of further build out renewable energy in Australia, particularly given our ageing coal fleet. So we're very excited about where we can take our renewable energy platform. And as I said, we've got a good starting point being one of the largest in the country. So with the portfolio, as you said, that Palisades is now one of the largest um, renewable energy asset holders, so to speak. Um, with um, wind farms, one question that comes up quite a lot is the reliance on subsidies. And there's some people argue that if tomorrow our subsidies, wind farms evaporate, like as an example, if the water rights, there are no subsidies, as an example, right? Then essentially the, that essentially business may get impacted greatly. Um, is that a concern for you or more importantly, how do you uh, factor into dealing with that? What are your thoughts? Um, so new build uh, wind and new build solar are absolutely economic at the moment without subsidies. So subsidies were brought in um, and, and the, the key form of the subsidy was the renewable energy target and large scale generation certificates, right? And that scheme runs out till 2030 and there's been no scheme put in place post-2030. Um, there may be, um, depending on sort of the actions of the government, but at this point, there's no scheme post-2030. Having said that, um, if you were to go and build a new generation at this moment, so if you had if you had the requirement for one additional megawatt in the, in the network, the cheapest way to do that at the moment would be renewables. So coal, gas, you had all those options on the table, ignoring any ESG impacts, Renewables is the cheapest form of new build generation at the moment, right? So this asset class can now and is now surviving without subsidies. And so the way in which uh, our investments are structured is um, we uh, enter into long-term offtake agreements for our renewable energy assets. So if we're out there working with a developer on a new renewable energy asset, we will look to, before we put any dollars in the ground, um, we will look to ensure that um, we have a, an offtake, a long-term offtake agreement in place. And that could either be with a Origin Energy, an AGL, one of the big retailers. It could be with a government, a state government counterparty. And we've, we've got all of those counterparties now in our portfolio. And we will look to contract that power um, out for 10, 15 years or, or whatever it may be. Now, at the moment, there is no subsidy attached to to that contract, right? So at the moment, for new build generation, there are no subsidies being underwritten. For the existing assets that we have in our portfolio, we have, um, we have obviously get the benefit of the subsidies through the large scale generation certificates that we sell. But following 2030, there's no, there's no assumption in the model around that, around those subsidies continuing, right? So I think it was early on when renewable energy was an emerging asset class, it was probably right that the asset class couldn't survive without subsidies. And we're, and we're seeing that with, with batteries at the moment, right? It, it's still probably at the margin if they are economic without subsidies. But we've seen this extraordinary fall in technology costs for both wind and solar components and technology. And that's basically made subsidies um, non-existent or not required because of that falling in technology costs. Well, the cost, so the access to um, <clears throat> renewable, cheap, you know, reliable energy is very, very important for our society, right? And and I, I agree with a lot of people when they say that we need to get clean, um, but unfortunately, you know, life doesn't always work out the way that we want. So there's also uh, many people discussing that it might be a gradual step over the next 50 years, so to speak. And they're saying that, you know, if you look at natural gas, that might be the the least of all evils in the transition phase. Um, I think I saw in the portfolio that you have infrastructure exposure to the gas space. Is that still the case? Yeah, it is. Um, and look, we, we very much remain supportive of gas 
as a transition fuel. We think it's absolutely fundamental to ensuring that we have an orderly transition to renewables. And What's so, the asset? So we've got two gas pipelines in, in the portfolio. And these gas pipelines, um, they're similar in strategy in that um, one goes north and one goes south, right? So, so the one that goes south is our Tasmanian gas pipeline, and that takes gas basically from the Bass Strait um, and from the Victorian sort of mainland down to down to Tassie. And then the one that goes north takes gas from the Morrimbah gas basin up to Townsville. But very similar strategy in terms of the role that those pipelines play in that the one in the north connects into the Townsville power station, the one in the south connects into the Tamar Valley power station in Tassie, right? And so they very much um, provide the role as providing um, security, um, energy security to, to those regions when um, renewables or other forms of generation may not be available to provide power, right? So it's very much an energy security play. And that just, um, that just sort of further compounds the point that we do believe that gas has a role to play in, in an orderly transition to, to renewables because at the moment battery storage is not going to be able to play the role of that firming power because you, you need firming power, right? The wind doesn't blow all the time. Obviously, the sun doesn't shine at night time and so you need that complementary power. And so batteries are just not at the point and probably will not be at the point where they can play that role to any large degree for several years. And so we definitely think that gas has a continuing role to play in the, in the energy mix. The other thing to mention as well is that, um, you know, gas is still required by, by industry for, for sort of heating and other manufacturing purposes. And at the moment, um, electricity just cannot play that, that role. So, um, you know, I think it's important to sort of remember that gas has a sort of dual role in the economy. It's, a, it's going to be a transition fuel, but equally as well, it is a, a fundamental part of, of manufacturing in Australia as well. <clears throat> that's what you're saying. Your team essentially looks for infrastructure that's difficult to be removed and, you know, it's going to be required for many generations to come, right? That's right, yeah. So speaking of the team, how big is the team now? Uh, so the team is – so we split our team into investment personnel and asset management personnel. Um, so in the investment team, we're around 30. Uh, and in the uh, asset management team, that's close to 50 now. So we've got a, a team in Australia of around about uh, 15, 20. Um, and then we've actually um, we've actually got a team as well based in in the UK who um, who do a lot of our um, we've got an anaerobic digestion platform that we're building out in the UK and, and they and they work on on that platform so it is a scalable team now and importantly you know we think it's a good um, mix to have both investment personnel but particularly the operational guys right so um, you know they are very much involved in the day to day running. Of these assets, um, they don't they don't turn the spanners, but they they manage the guys that turn the spanners, right? So, um, you know, we think it's really important that we that we sort of augment that that sort of investment capability that we have um, with actual guys that sort of live and breathe these assets on the ground. Well, having a good team is very very important, and I suppose our clients uh, one of the main questions they want to understand is essentially uh, the behavioural psychology behind the alignment. Of, of the team and how they're remunerated. As we know, different remuneration structures is essentially, you know, create different outcomes. Um, so how is the fee structure and bonus structure work at Palisade? Um, secondly, uh, is there a high watermark? What's the benchmark? Why is the benchmark chosen? And can you give a bit of an overview? That'd be great. Yeah, sure. So the, the alignment and the remuneration I think the key point is that 65% of Palisade is owned by, by by staff, right? Which is which is pretty powerful, and that's that's consistent with the broader Pinnacle model, which is they they take minority stakes in in various affiliates and then provide um, back office support, uh, distribution, um, you know, HR, etc. Um, so it's consistent with the the broader Pinnacle model, but but what that that model allows us to do is, um, as an investment team, we can focus on what we do best, which is investing and in, in, in managing assets. Um, and so, um, fundamentally, we are aligned through our ownership of, of Palisade. And so, very simply, 
um, we have a short-term incentive and a long-term incentive at Palisade. Our short-term incentive is is funded out of out of the performance fees that we that we that we generate for the business, and obviously those performance fees are linked to the performance of our clients' portfolios. And then we have a long-term investment scheme, which is um, which is the ability to participate in the equity of, of Palisade. So there's that long-term alignment, and there's also vesting provisions as well. So um, you know, heaven forbid, if we decide to leave, you're always leaving. You're always leaving something on the table, um, which which is good. It's it's a good tool to ensure that people uh, sort of remain um, remain with the business as a retention tool. Um, but and then also we've had um, several team members um, invest their own personal capital as well into into Palisade as well. And you know, I think having that LTI is is really powerful but when you actually put your own personal capital into the business it really sort of sharpens the mind in terms of wanting to ensure that you you are really delivering the best outcomes for, for your clients because it's your own personal money at risk as well so you know I, I think the, the the incentive regime that we've got at Palisade is is it strikes right balance of um of, of fairness of um alignment and and retention uh, as well in terms of how performance fees are, um, are structured across the business, you're absolutely right. It's a high watermark, um, and if there is underperformance against that high watermark, then we need to catch up to that to that high watermark again before we can start generating performance fees. Um, fortunately, when we're not in that position where um, where we're underwater, so um, what is the benchmark? So the benchmark is a um, is a bonds plus a margin benchmark. So on the uh, on the diversified funds, it's bonds plus five percent. And why was that chosen? Why was that chosen? Um, look, I think there's probably there's probably three main benchmarks you can choose within within infrastructure. One is a, a CPI plus benchmark, and sort of that makes sense given the the natural um, sort of linkages to inflation. One is a fixed benchmark, so you know seven percent, eight percent is not is not unusual in the current market. And then the others, which we've seen, is obviously a bonds plus benchmark. Now, in terms of why that was chosen, look, I think you know infrastructure being you now we spoke before about being that defensive asset class. Um, you know, I, I don't agree with this, but people have often referred to infrastructure as a proxy for bonds. Um, given the defensive nature of the asset class, I I can see why people say that, but but personally, I don't I don't agree with that. I think Isn't that the argument essentially with COVID that you know, oh, commercial properties never come off in ever, and then all of a sudden you have a supply side shutdown and nothing happens for two years. And that's right. So I mean, COVID did a lot of things to asset yeah. classes which people never expected. But, um, but when I get concerned when people say, oh, this has never happened, this will never happen going forward. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but anyway, so so I think you know in that regard, um, there's a there is a, a sensibility to having a, a sort of bonds plus a margin benchmark for, for yep. infrastructure, and that's ultimately what was chosen for our fund. Um, you know, fifteen or so years ago, that's been the benchmark since, um, and you know we think it we think it provides a, a sort of good level of um, sort of alignment and and and, um, and performance benchmark for the team. Um, that's really good to get an understanding of. So is there any thoughts you want to leave our listeners and clients with? Um, look, I think the, the beauty about – one of the things I like about infrastructure is um, you can – it's real, right? I know it's a real asset, right? But you can see and touch it. Um, you can experience it. I experienced it last week in, in Noosa when I flew into Sunshine Coast Airport. Um I hate to admit this, but it was actually my first time on the, the new runway, even though really? it's been built for two years. Yeah, so um, slap on the wrist for me. But um, but like it was it was fantastic. It was a, it's a really uh, great airport now, and um, you know I think it's uh, we're we're turning our minds now to a, a terminal redevelopment for that for that airport, and so I think it's going to be really really exciting. But that's just one example um in the portfolio where you know you can actually visit you can experience our, our assets you know i was in gold coast last year uh, with with the family and we we had a ride on the we had a ride on the tram and and that's something that we've that's something that we funded right so it, it is it is nice from that perspective to be able to 
see and touch and experience assets that you're that you're invested in. And I think the beauty with our portfolio is that you know we don't just have capital city infrastructure. Um, given our mid market focus, we are very heavily invested in regional Australia as well. So you know we've obviously got our our renewable portfolio, which which um, you know, given the nature of those assets are in regional communities, but we've also got Port of Portland in, in sort of regional Victoria. We've got our um, livestock exchange agri-infrastructure business in, in, in regional Australia. So it's quite nice that we're able to sort of touch um, sort of various various sort of communities with Australia. And that, that's really important to us as a as an infrastructure owner is, you know, working closely with the, with the communities because, um, a lot of the a lot of the communities that our assets exist in, um, you know, they rely very heavily and uh, on on that on that on those assets um, to to be able to, to 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 live right. So it, it is, it's it's a nice you know from that perspective it's a it's a it's a nice um, it's a nice sort of investment to be, to be making. But you know I think if I could sum up the strategy in one word, it's it's access to. A high-quality portfolio of mid-market infrastructure assets that have both defensive characteristics, um, but also um, good levels of capital growth and and good income yields as well. Um, if anyone wants to learn more about the strategy and the team, how can they reach? Uh, Pinnacle do a, a great job with us as our distribution partner. So um, you can either reach out to someone on the on the Pinnacle team. Uh, their, their details are on, on the website or. Please look me up on the, the Palisade website and I'll be happy to assist as well. Fantastic. Andrew, thank you very much for your time. It's been really, really interesting. Thanks, Murdoch. My pleasure. Have a good day. Any views expressed in this recording do not represent the view of any other third party and are the sole personal opinions of the speaker. Any reference to financial product does not constitute advice or recommendation, and before any action, you should seek proper advice from your financial professional. Australian listeners should head to www.moneysmart.gov.au to find more information on obtaining financial advice. To get in touch with York, head to our website, www.yorkwealth.com.au.